as we interact with God's word is to be humble before God, to be broken, yielded, willing to apply. Remember that anytime we interact with God's word, whether it be someone teaching or someone singing, it's a two-way street. Someone may minister God's word, but we need to be willing to hear, not only hear, but seek to apply it in our lives. So a question as we begin, not looking for a response, but would you purchase a house? Would you purchase a house that has no foundation? Would you purchase a house that has no foundation? I have here a little doll from years ago that our kids had. And I made sure I picked one out that the head will come off of. I can twist this a little and pull the head off. I'm not going to do it right now. Some of you might get upset, you know, if I did that. But as we interact with God's Word this morning, think about the physical body. Let the doll be an illustration of that. What happens when you take the head and remove it from the body? I think we obviously know that the body dies, the head dies, there is no longer any life. Also, think about this morning as we interact with God's Word, what happens with a house that may appear fine, but there is no foundation? We have discussed and been discussing Mark's Gospel, which clearly presents the identity, the character, the being of Jesus Christ. In light of who Jesus is, Mark concludes his gospel with the cross of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus invites people to follow him because of his identity, his being, his character, not merely his work on the cross. God wants us to follow Christ because of who he is. Because of who he is, we have the cross, we have the resurrection, we have life. In light of the thrust of Mark's gospel, I'm going to take a few weeks to address what I call an incorrect, false teaching that has been present in some way since the church began some 2,000 years ago. Its strength and evidence depends on the time period in which we live. In the last 20 or 30 years, I think the ugly head of some false teaching has again reared its head. So we want to interact with Scripture, but first of all, just state a couple things what would be incorrect teaching. And you may read this statement, salvation is an individual choice by which one escapes hell, goes to heaven, and has forgiveness of sins. You say, that sounds okay. I'm not debating whether that sounds okay or not, my concern is that in quite a few cases, that's where it stops. I'm escaping hell. I'm going to heaven. My sins are forgiven. There's no walking with Christ day by day. Another one, one can experience salvation having hope of heaven without a biblical relationship with the body of Christ. 
One in relationship with the head, but not with the body. I'm related to Christ. I have forgiveness of sins. But I don't necessarily want to be connected to the body. That's separating the head from the body. And as you look at Scripture, that's going down a wrong path. The focus of the teaching is individual is central rather than Christ in the body. The past, forgiveness of sins. The future, heaven. But what about the present? Salvation is not merely escaping hell and the future going to heaven. Salvation involves the present. Also, relating to Christ, relating to the body of Christ. Some impact of the teaching is that salvation is about me. Just individualistic. Not God's glory. The present is neglected or downplayed. When does salvation begin? When we come to faith in Christ. Eternal life begins when we come to faith in Christ. It's not merely future. Relationships are not that important. But yet scripture would emphasize that. The body of Christ. Many times the local expression is ignored. Professing believers claim salvation due to a past experience, not a present lifestyle of obedience. If you were to ask me, Dan, are you alive? I would say yes. And then you say, how do you know you're alive? Well, I was born almost 63 years ago. That doesn't mean I'm alive now, does it? How do I know I'm alive? I ate this morning, I'm breathing air, I'm walking, I'm moving around, my heart's beating. You know, and all of those things, that's present. Salvation, we come to faith at Christ, in Christ's appointed time, but how about the present? And then there's just little biblical connection to the body of Christ. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at several passages in the book of Ephesians. Paul obviously writing to the church in Ephesus, a church that was maturing in faith and love. But later on, when you get to the book of Revelation, some 30 years later, or maybe over 30 years later, you know, the church was not doing as well. But in Ephesians 1, we find that Paul is the writer. He's writing to the saints in Ephesus. He expresses to them, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 3 through 14, he talks about the blessings that are available in Christ. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on to list those blessings. And we're not going to discuss them this morning. We have adoption. We're going to be presented to God holy and blameless some of those blessings that we've been blessed with that we mentioned last week. And then in 15, through the end of the chapter, we find that Paul is praying for them. Look at verse 15 of Ephesians 1. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. 
And the idea of know there is not merely intellectual knowledge. It's talking about, you know, experiencing him day by day. He goes on as he prays for them. In verse 18, he's, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, we're not going to discuss most of the prayer. I want to touch on just a few things. But he's praying for the believers. And obviously, he wants them to know God. He desires that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened so that they might grasp the hope to which they've been called. And that hope is to be presented to God holy and blameless, presented earlier in chapter 1. They might grasp God's glorious inheritance in us. What is God's inheritance? Us, his saints. And then thirdly, that they might grasp the incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he talks about that power, the power that raised Christ from the dead, exalted Christ to his right hand and made him head of the church. And notice in verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet, that is the feet of Christ, appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ, the head, being connected to the body. I can't get them together on the spur of the moment. You don't have a head separated from the body. You don't have a body separated from the head. Or you don't have either. And Paul is praying that believers might grasp the power that is at work within us. And then he concludes with Christ being the head of the body. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he talks about our being dead in transgressions and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy and his great love, he has raised us up with Christ, made us part of Christ. Then in 11 through the end of chapter 2, he talks about what happens with Christ. And let's pick up reading with verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of the men, remember that at that time you also, or you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, 
have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Gentiles separated from the covenant. In the Old Testament, God made covenant with the Jews, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Gentiles not part of that covenant. But now in Christ, he says that has changed. In verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, having destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. What happened? Jew, Gentile, come to faith in Christ, and they become members of the same body. Whether Jew or Gentile, the wall between the Jew and the Gentile being broken down in Christ. His purpose in the middle of verse 15 was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So whether Jew or Gentile come to God by Christ, there's peace. They become members of the same body. Consequently, in verse 19, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. But on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to be a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. In chapter 1, he talks about the body and the head. Here he talks about Christ being the chief cornerstone. And then he talks about the building. In him, the building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Would you buy a house without a foundation? Well, I hope you would say no. Can you have the body of Christ? Can you have the church without Christ as the chief cornerstone? No. Just as you need the head for the body, the cornerstone is necessary for the building. Again, building a dependency. The body is dependent upon the head. The building is dependent upon the cornerstone. In chapter 3, he shares more about his ministry, and then he prays for the saints in Ephesus. Then in chapter 4, he talks about how you're to live and respond. Chapter 4 and verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What's this calling you have received? Chapter 1, Be presented to God holy and blameless, been adopted as God's children, been redeemed, been forgiven, been blessed with every spiritual blessing, live worthy of that calling. How do you do it? Be humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. What is that all about? Relationships. 
He's talking about the body. How the body gets along, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. I think we all at times need to be humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another. He says in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why? There's one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father, and God who is over all. Then in verses 7 through 13, he moves into the gifts that God has given gifts. Christ, rather, has given gifts to the body of Christ. Those gifts are to be used for the building up of the body. Picking up with verse 14 of chapter 4. Then we will no longer be infants. When is then? As the body is functioning, the body is built up. No longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. Now he goes back to the body. Illustration. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The body functioning, believers within the body functioning, ministering to one another, speaking the truth, exercising their gifts, and the body grows up into Christ, Christ being the head. You will find similar truth presented in Colossians 1. In Ephesians 1 through 3, it's about Christ, and in Ephesians 4 through 6, it's about the body. Colossians 1 and 2 is about Christ. Colossians 3 and 4 is about the body and its relationships. John 1 is, you are in Christ. John 3, 11 through 5, 5 is about relationships. As you study scripture, the head, Christ, is connected to the body. The body is the body. You don't have an arm separated from the rest of the body or leg separated from the rest of the body. It's all connected. The body connected to one another, members of one another connected to the head. The building, Christ being the chief cornerstone with the various parts of the building being held together. So what's the biblical teaching? Christ, the head, is intimately related to his body the church. They're a unit. Christ and the body are intimately related. I dare people sometimes, and I dare you to do this, read the epistles and look at the union between Christ and believers. They're united. We're part of Christ. We're members of one another. If you're part of the body, you're part of the head. No, you're united together. 
So some statements in light of what we've been discussing. Christ died for the body. And that was a great price. In Acts 20, 28, we find that Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders. And he says, guard yourself. Guard the flock. Shepherd the flock, which is under your care, that was purchased at a great price. What was the price? The blood of Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, you've been redeemed, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And we're talking about the body here, purchased with the blood of the head, Christ, the one who was the Lamb of God. Christ, the head, and his body, the church, are a unit. Can't separate them. Now, I realize that uh, I pulled the head of this doll off. But you can't do that. Christ is united to the church. They're a unit. You try to separate them, you don't have the body. Christ is the body's life. Believers cannot live apart from Christ. We can't live the Christian life in and of ourselves. Christ is our life. We heard in the last year some people who were beheaded in certain parts of our world. And when the head rolls away, life ceases. Christ and the body are intimately related. The body is dependent upon the head. The body is a unit. Members depend upon one another. I don't suggest you do this, but suppose you take your wrist or uh, cut your hand off the wrist and put it somewhere in your house. And about three days later, go back and take it and go to the hospital and say, there's something wrong, my hand isn't functioning anymore. Well, they say it's not attached to the body. We are dependent upon one another. We need one another. The body is dependent upon Christ. We can't live the Christian life. Being reconciled to God means we have become a member of the body of Christ. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, Ephesians 3, Colossians 1, along with other passages. Reconciliation, salvation, radically influences desires. It changes us from the inside out. Ephesians chapter 4 and 17 through 22, we find that Paul there is speaking to the effect, he says, you know, you've changed. Your inside has changed. Your desires have changed because you're in Christ. So tied in with what number seven says, a fact, union with Christ and union with his body, again, transform, transforms desire. It's interesting when someone comes to faith in Christ, there's a change. They say, I don't desire some of the things I 
used to desire. As we grow in Christ, our desires change because we're connected to the head. Other people speak truth into our life, as we discussed in Ephesians 4, and our desires change. Whether it be a man or a woman or a guy or a girl sitting at the computer and something pops up in the computer you're not even looking for, it, but something not good, so good pops up in the computer. And you say, I don't want to get down that road. I really don't desire it. It's a change in desire. You and your family are having a discussion and someone makes a pretty strong statement. And you say, I don't desire to argue. I want to respond with gentleness, with humility, with patience. Your desires change. My wife told me that uh, when I was younger, I'm not saying I'm not guilty now, I would get together with my brothers, especially Bob. Bob and I would have intelligent discussions. She called it arguing. I've noticed that my desire has changed because I would want to prove him wrong. I'll admit that now, looking back. I want to prove him wrong. And it was usually about the Bible that we were talking, you know. We differed in some areas. And to this day, Bob will make some statements. I think, oh, Bob, you're out there in left field. But he thinks I'm in left field, too. I don't want to argue. I'm willing to discuss and say, let's look at what Scripture says. But the desires have changed. I don't have to win the argument. That's, you know, God working because of united to Christ and because some people speaking truth into my life along the way. Some applications. There's no life apart from Christ as head. There's no life. Got to be a relationship with God through Christ. So the question is, have you come to faith in Christ? The second application, dependency upon Christ is shown in dependency upon the body. Well, depend upon Christ but we demonstrate that practically by depending upon other people. In the future, we'll address that a little more, but that's where the one and others come in. I need encouragement. You need encouragement. We need rebuke. We need correction. We need others to pray for us. We need forgiveness from others. We need to grant forgiveness. We're dependent. If you don't think you are, I've got to pick the correct person here. Uh, suppose on the way out from church this morning, I say to uh, Arden, hang on, I want to talk to you a little. So he hangs on and there's still a few people around and I just tell Arden off. I display anger and I tell him what a I won't go beyond that. <laughs> no, not such a good guy that he is. Let's say, get out of here, Arden. He would go home, and I bet all week he would suffer with that. What in the world is going on here? What's happening? Why would that bother him? We're dependent on each other. So finally, he gets the nerve and calls me and says, Pastor, what in the world is going on with you? You really, really deeply hurt me. And I say, Arden, I should have called you first. The Lord really challenged me, and I was wrong. I repent. Will you forgive me? 
See, we're dependent upon each other. We need one another. We show that dependency upon Christ by depending upon each other. It would be like Daniel saying to someone, I'm struggling in this area of my life. Will you pray for me? I need someone to pray. He's dependent. Commitment to Christ is shown in commitment to the body. How do I show I love Christ? I'm committed to the body. The body of Christ. We love Christ by loving his body. To neglect the body is to neglect Christ and point up our nose at Christ's sacrifice. To neglect the body of Christ is to neglect Christ. You see, what's it mean to neglect the body of Christ? Lord willing, we'll address that a little more next week. To neglect the body is to neglect Christ. Just kind of like pulling the head off, so to speak. Because they're intimately related. What you do to one, you do to the other. Because there's a union that is present. I'm fearful that at times we have divorced the head Christ from his body by claiming Christ while neglecting his body. If I neglect the body, I neglect the head. If I neglect the head, I neglect the body. Now there, there's a union there. They're intimately related. And the enemy, down through the pages of church history, has lured us to live as islands. But God has called us into a body. Jerry, you want to take me to correct teaching, please? As we think about what we have discussed, what is the correct teaching? Or complete, we'll say, salvation, reconciliation, regeneration are possible due to the convicting work of the Spirit, which results in one becoming a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, through repentance of sin and faith in Christ. The repentant, believing sinner enters into relationship with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, and with the body of Christ. Yes, we come to faith in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We escape hell. We're going to heaven. But we're entering into a relationship with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, with the body of Christ. And we're dependent upon Christ. We're dependent upon his body. So think the head, the body are connected. Christ is the head. Believers are the body. But we're connected to one another. We care for the body. In the process, we care for the head. We submit to Christ. We demonstrate that by submitting to others within the body of Christ. Two questions. Are you in Christ? Have you come to faith in Christ? Secondly, if you're in Christ, 
or committed to Christ by being committed to his body. And we'll discuss and explain that more in the next couple weeks. In light of what we have been looking at, let's sing together. Praise God for the body. Travis. Travis.